And we are so excited to introduce to you today our amazing guest, CJ Modi, who is running for Superior Court Judge in San Diego, Office 18. CJ has been a Deputy District Attorney for 17 years, spending his first two years with the Riverside DA's office and the last 15 with the San Diego District Attorney's office. He has spent the last 13 years with the Family Protection Division, prosecuting homicide, domestic violence, child abuse, elder abuse, and child pornography cases, and has also been a supervisor for the last How, five how do you years. go home at night, son? <laughs> We'll We'll talk about that. that. We'll talk about that. No, no, no. So CJ has an awesome story. He immigrated to the United States from India with his family when he was 12 and has been a resident of San Diego ever since. I mean, once you come here, how do you leave? His parents are small business owners who came to the U.S. in search of better educational opportunities for their kids, which I think that's what every parent hopes for their kids, you know, a better life than they had. He attended the Bishop School, 7th to 12th grade, my alma mater, um, and then the University of San Diego for both his undergraduate and law degrees. Also, I know. So we'll talk about that as well. (laughs) Dive into that a little later. Um, So prior to attending law school, CJ worked as a teacher with the San Diego Juvenile Court and Community Schools. There was a pivotal moment in his career when he was assigned to teach at a residential program for abused children. It was at this program that he saw the huge role that the district attorney's office plays in protecting and fighting for victims. And it was then that he realized the direction he wanted to take his career in. CJ is dedicated to serving the community with a huge emphasis on public safety. And he's also been involved with the San Diego Bar Association and was an editor for San Diego Lawyer Magazine. CJ is married to his lovely wife, Caitlin, and they have two daughters and live in La Jolla. Welcome, CJ. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. Do your kids go to Bishops? No, we don't. We don't. <laughs> no, not yet. They're too young. Okay. We'll talk about that. Thank God. No, no. His one daughter is fine. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah, Thank no. God. Well, Bishops, do you hear that? you got to take his daughter. But we'll, we'll get there. But first of all, why are you running? Let's talk about this office. I feel like it's a, an office that people have a lot of, not necessarily misconceptions about, but just don't know a lot about. Do you Have you seen that in your campaigning? And Absolutely. The yeah. first thing you get said to you when you're running and you go out in the community and you're meeting people is like, wow, we've never met someone running for judge before. <laughs> right. And the second thing they say is we never usually vote for judges because we have no idea who you guys are. So <laughs> I, I've been a resident of San Diego for the last 33 years. I moved here in 1987 when I was 12 years old. Now we know how old you are. Okay? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I, I'm a lot younger than my gray hair. You, well, I'm a lot younger <laughs> than my gray hair shows as well. So <laughs> That's amazing. Um, But when I graduated college, I became a teacher and public service to this city, to this county where I've lived my entire life has always been very important to me. Um, I worked as a teacher for a couple of years with the juvenile court and community schools. When I decided to go to law school, I knew I wanted to be a prosecutor and I joined the DA's office. I've been a DA for the last 17 years. I firmly believe that a prosecutor's number one priority and only priority is to do justice. It's not to convict. I know a lot of people have that misconception, unfortunately, but we are there to do justice across every single circumstance, across every single case. And that's what I've done my entire career. But I've also made sure to hold people responsible for the choices that they made that brought them before the court. And that's what I hope to continue to do as a Superior Court judge, to continue my service to this community, to make sure that justice is served, but to also hold people responsible for the choices that brought them before the court. Why a judge and not a not like the San Diego City DA's office? I, or I even mean, City well, Attorney? Well, 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 no, the a DA. You've got the DA and you've got a city attorney. Okay. And so, but but why not one of those positions? Why why a judge? I mean, because because a judge. A district attorney. And so no, but but but, but, but I'm saying why not the top oh, one? Well, no, well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I have no desire to run again against my boss, Summer <laughs> Stephan. Let, let me make not that a good be, career move. Let me make that very very clear <laughs> right off the bat. Love it. Um, you know. I truly believe that being a prosecutor and seeking justice and then moving on to becoming a judge who can ensure fairness and impartiality on both sides, to me, is is the highest pinnacle of public service when you're an attorney. And I have lived my life as a prosecutor in a very, very particular way. And I think that's you can see that in the, in the endorsements I have and the support I've received throughout the community. People realize that I've been a fair and impartial prosecutor. And to me, this is the next step. This is the way that I would like to continue to serve my community to make sure I can serve the community as a whole while ensuring justice. Cool. 
No, I love that. I mean, basically, um, you spoke to the union trib, as I know most candidates did. It was brutal for some candidates. It seemed like they, you know, didn't you didn't have to do too much there. They only, I think, asked about two questions there. Um, some of the other interviews we read were not not ideal. But uh, so you spoke to the union trip about how, with the increase in reduced sentences uh, for certain crimes, I'm assuming probably drug usage and stuff like that, um, we really need to balance that out with better deterrences for future future criminal behavior and conduct, as it's actually increased since those reduced sentences have come to light. And I know that right. that's something, you know, you, you were asked about, like, what would you do differently? And uh, right now you said law enforcement courts and probation departments don't really have good deterrence in place to reduce recidivism. And how do you kind of, if elected and, you know, you get into that position, what right. would you do? What do you see doing differently? Well, one of the biggest issues that we do have is that we have 99% of our, you know, of our individuals in this society who are convicted get released on probation or parole at some point in time. They're not serving life sentences. Mm -hmm. And if we don't adequately address the underlying issues that brought them into the criminal justice mm -hmm. system, um, that that made them commit the crimes and then, you know, led to them getting convicted, once they're released, they're simply going to go back into that life mm -hmm. and then get back into the system and get back into jail or prison. And it's just a revolving door. And that revolving door doesn't serve justice, and it certainly does not serve public safety. So it is very important for us to be able to figure out what those situations are, what those underlying causes are, and help those individuals treat those causes so that they can be successful when they get back out. Now, if people don't avail themselves of those opportunities, if they don't avail themselves of those options that they're given, and they continue to lead lives of crime, well, then eventually punishment is the end result of that. One of the things that I think we've done a very good job of with the DA's office and the public defender's office and our court systems is the increase in funding for our collaborative courts. And we have a number of different collaborative courts around the uh, around the county. It started off, you know, 30 years ago with drug court. That was the original collaborative court that we had where we would take individuals who committed crimes and they but they had substance abuse issues and put them into this lengthy treatment program where they were monitored on a regular basis. But we've we've really branched out into mental health court, veterans court, and we've put a lot of resources and time into those into those programs. And I think we need to continue to do that so that people can actually take advantage of those resources and try to make some significant changes in their lives. Can you talk a little bit about the court structure in California? Uh, Superior Court. And oh, can I, I ask one more question sure, sure, based sure, off of that sure. really quick? Because I know Joe Leventhal was also on the podcast as well, and that was something that we talked about. And I know each you know city and, and county in uh, California has different ways of dealing with certain crimes and different courts that they go to. I, I think it was San Francisco. They said that they deal with um, public nuisance and uh, uh, what do they call them? Not crimes of uh, life causes the quality of life. Oh, there crimes. we go. Quality of life crimes. I know that those are dealt with actually in traffic court to a certain extent up there. Do you think that if we can get people in San Diego who are obviously in the criminal system and who have been repeat offenders to go through lengthier, you know, um, things like what you talked about, programs for drug abuse or mental health and all that kind of stuff, do you think we can reduce that rate? Like, do you think that is an effective option? Absolutely. I've spent the last five years on our mental health court down in Chula Vista. Okay. So I, I was the supervisor of the Family Protection Division for the last five years in Chula Vista. And I was one of the DAs who sat on our mental health court every two weeks. Oh, wow. And so what we would do is we had wraparound services for these individuals who committed crimes but had severe mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And we had probation there. We had uh, several different county uh, county administrators and programs there and the public defender's office there. And we would make sure that these individuals had a very highly structured program uh, to make sure that they continue to take their medication, that they were given job training, mm -hmm. that they had places to live, and so they could continue to be successful. I think one of the biggest problems is, is when you do something that's short-term, it's just a panacea or just a yeah, Band-Aid that yeah, you put yeah. over the issue where they go into a housing program for two weeks and they take medication, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it helps treat their mental health issues, but then they're back out yeah. with no structure whatsoever. Well, then they're back out on the streets. They're self-medicating. They're not taking the medication they're supposed to. And then all the issues start again. So I absolutely do think that if we have the ability to create structured programs for these individuals to treat the specific issues that they're dealing with, we can be successful in the long run. I love that. It's kind of like getting to the root cause to, to solve the bigger issue. It's kind of like functional medicine versus, you know, traditional in a sense. You're treating the whole as Absolutely. opposed to just 
individual symptoms Absolutely. of the problem. And if you don't balance those two, you're never going to achieve public safety and oh, you're never yeah. going to achieve justice. And I think you absolutely have to have that balance. No, for sure. Thank you. But yeah, sorry, Dad, I didn't mean to cut you off there previously. A couple of quick ones. So, so but, but you, I mean, talking about this, the you know, justice versus mercy. And the courts, I, I mean, if you think about a court, uh, you know, somebody comes into the court, it's, you know, my understanding with the uh, a superior court, it's got both civil jurisdiction and also criminal jurisdiction. Uh, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how much is each, uh, how much would, would you be doing of each. But but my understanding, though, right now, then, well, let me take a step back and just say, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the, the state court system? And then maybe even, as you were saying, with some of these other courts, are they at the state level or the county level or the city level? I don't think a lot of people know that there are yeah. like mental health courts. Absolutely. So yeah, Absolutely. Fair. So the Superior Court of San Diego is the county court in San Diego. So the Superior Court deals with every type of lawsuit or case that goes through the court systems in San Diego, anywhere from traffic tickets to small claims, criminal, civil, family, probate. So any of those cases that are dealt with in San Diego go through the Superior Court. It, it's funny, the term Superior Court confuses a lot of people yeah. <laughs> because they think it's some kind of higher court. Right. Um, but some of the attorneys that have been around a little longer remember that we used to have a municipal court and a superior court. Oh, okay. And so the municipal court was a lower court in the county. Yeah. The superior court when was, was a higher court. This was in the um, late 80s, early 90s yeah. when they merged the two, and it simply became the superior court of San okay. Diego. So any so the superior court, like I said, is the, is the county courts there, the trial courts in San Diego. If you appeal a case from the superior court in California, it goes up to the appellate courts. And then from there, it goes up to the California Supreme Court. So there are those are the three levels of court systems we have in 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 California. The mental health courts, the drug courts and everything that we talked about, those are all part of the superior court. They are countywide, uh, but they are all within the jurisdiction of the Superior Court of San Diego. Okay. How many Superior Court judges do we have in San Diego County? We have 135 Superior Court judges in San Diego County and wow. another approximately 20 um, commissioners. Oh, wow. So the commissioners deal primarily with the small claims, the traffic tickets, things oh, wow. of that nature. Um, and then the 135 Superior Court judges are spread out throughout the different courts that we have in San Diego, all the way from Vista down to Chula Vista, out to East County, obviously downtown. And then we have the juvenile court, which is in Kearney Mesa. Wow. Are the judges all elected? No. Judges in California can either be appointed by the governor or elected. And the difference between the two and the way those work is that judges in California serve six-year terms. So if a judge decides to retire somewhere in the middle of their six-year term, the governor appoints a replacement for the remainder of that six-year term. And then when the end of that term is up, that individual then becomes the incumbent. If a judge waits until the end of their six-year term to retire, then the governor cannot appoint a replacement and that seat stays open for election. So what we have this time around is we have four open seats because we had four judges who are at the end of their six-year term and they've decided not to seek re-election. And as a result, those seats have stayed open for election, and you now have the 11 of us who are running to fill those four seats. Oh, wow. Well, that's, that's very interesting. And, and you know, and one other structural question here. Politics, judges. Should judges be elected? Should they be appointed? Should there be a judge school? What's your thoughts? I don't I, I, know. No, but... Well, but uh, well, I mean, yes. in some some countries in Korea, for for example, in, in certain jurisdictions that, that are not common law, judges actually go through a separate track. If you want to be a judge, you, oh, you go through right. through a separate education. But what do you think about it? I know, you know, we get a lot of people, a lot of attorneys running for office going, oh, my God, I hate campaigning. But, yeah, but, they're like, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a politician, but, you know? <laughs> but, but, but for a judge to campaign, too, it's sort of, on the one hand, it's saying, hey, vote for me because I'm, you know, it's hard for you guys to say, I'm going to do this because, you, you know, so. It's an interesting process. There's a question in there somewhere. There's a yeah. question. <laughs> Thank you for pointing it out there, right? <laughs> no, you Intentional know, vagueness. You know, it really is an interesting process. And especially being a prosecutor who has been so private my entire life. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it's not letting people know about my family life, my personal oh, life, just yes. because of cases I deal with. 
having to put yourself out there, go out and meet people, speak to defense attorneys, speak to judges, and have conversations that you usually wouldn't have with them. Mm -hmm. It's been an interesting dynamic. You know, you yeah, walk sure. up to people and go, hey, you don't know me very well, but I'd like to use your name and give me some money, yeah. please. <laughs> and, and oh, by the way, I'm running to be a judge. Right. I feel like exactly. you're oh. San Diego right. now. <laughs> You know, unfortunately, um, well, judicial positions are nonpartisan, and they should be absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately, and people regardless, people sort of know which which sort of way they do. Right? I mean, you don't as far as on the ballot, but right? People sort of know. Absolutely, right? and 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 I know that that we would talk. We're going to talk about that a little yeah. li a little later, okay. um, but. You know, they are nonpartisan, but like you had asked about whether whether judges should be appointed or elected, both of those processes are political in nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And unfortunately, you know, regardless of which path you decide to choose, um, you know, when when you go through the appointment process with the governor, the governor's party plays a big role in which judges they choose, you know, on both sides. Yeah. It's not just uh, it's not just left to one side or the other. And then when you go through the political process, obviously, like you said, you're campaigning. And so you're all you're ultimately, you know, being a little bit of a politician yeah. when you're going through that as well. Oh, OK. And is that why it's six years? I mean, that's, you know, you know that's, the, that's the judges terms are set at six years. I'm not sure exactly oh. why the appellate courts and the Supreme Court uh, justices, their terms are set at 12 years. But oh, Superior wow. Court judges are, are six. Okay, sorry about that. I don't know if I'd want to do anything for 12 years consistently. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I know my dad touched on this when I was doing the intro, um, it's clear, obviously, child abuse and domestic violence cases were very, you know, they've been a huge part of your career and your ded dedication, obviously, to helping those who deal with such horrific situations is obviously evident in the charity work that you do. And I, I really wanted to talk about that because I learned a lot you know, when prepping for this and reading about everything you've done. And I just want, I don't know how you've had the time because there's been so many things that you've done, but I know that you've been the chair uh, of the domestic violence fatality review team for seven years and working with groups of domestic violence partner agencies that review domestic violence homicides, like all of them within the county, right. right. In order to analyze and kind of figure out what can we do to prevent this from happening in the future? Right. How, how do you think that, you know, being elected to this position, you can continue to keep up with that, that level of, of service that you have before? Like, how do you intend to, to keep going with that? I know you said initially why you got into this was because you saw the, how involved, you know, this position was in helping people going through these situations. Right, right. But kind of what do you see as the, as the future moving forward? If elected, how can you continue to help make things better? Well, I think one of the things that if you, if I am fortunate enough to be elected, that role changes a little bit. So you have to, you, you're definitely going to move away. I'm definitely going to move away from that advocacy. Yeah. You got to learn to wear that gown and wear that, that, you know, the black, the, you got to like black. I could get used to it. Even if it was pink, I'd get used uh, to right? it. So. Yeah, yeah, At least it's not Britain. You don't have to wear the wig. Right. You know? Although, how do you take that seriously? My, my daughters are very disappointed that if I were elected, I would not have to wear that wig. <laughs> yeah. So, have been a little Marie Antoinette. Exactly. I love it. <laughs> Um, you, you know, I think it's very important for judges to stay connected with the community. I think when you're a judge, though, you have to be careful about what groups and what, yeah. uh, you know, what organizations you're you involved in. With. Absolutely, because you do not want to be um, aligned with one side or the other or with any kind of advocacy mm -hmm. when it comes to situations like that. But I do think it is very important for judges to continue to educate the public about our court system, um, about how our court system works, about how judicial elections work. Um, and, and one of the ways that I've done that, and I've been fortunate enough to work with judges in the past, is through the San Diego County Bar. And okay. we've done a lot of programs with elementary schools, with middle schools, to, um, you know, to, to go out and teach the kids about our laws, about what's right and wrong. Yeah, and there's a big, used to be a big program um, called Street Law. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and so we've had video game. <laughs> right. Well, um, you know, but we there was a there, uh, street justice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ninja King. Yeah. No. <laughs> Um, but we had, you know, like Project Lead was uh, yeah. was something that we had dealt with, where we we go into elementary and middle schools around the county, 
And there's a lesson plan that we follow. And we, we teach kids about our court system. We teach them about right and wrong and about things that happen in school, bullying, shoplifting, um, you know, things that, uh, that fourth, fifth, sixth graders are dealing with. And then if they do something wrong, what are the possible consequences? And then oh, what the role? Dare program. Right. Scarcity. Exactly. Out of you exactly. as a child. I know. It worked for me. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Um, you know, those, those are all important. I think we absolutely need to make sure that judges are involved in the community in that sense. Um, I, unfortunately, if I if I am elected, I wouldn't be able to be involved with the domestic violence yeah. fatality review team and things like that anymore. Um, but there are definitely a lot of good opportunities to continue to give back to the community, which I fully intend to do. And I think you'd said earlier, too, when we were talking that the reason why you can't continue to align yourself with even great organizations like that is because you can't be a part of something in which you might be ruling upon. And is that, is that pretty much accurate? That's, that's true. And and so the advocacy part of it obviously goes away completely. Yeah. But one of the things we have to be very careful of as judicial candidates, and then obviously as judges eventually, is to make sure that you are not stating any positions or giving any opinions on any matters that you might be called to preside over when and if you are elected. Yeah. Because judges obviously have to be fair and impartial um, we have to rule within the law. We have to follow the Constitution and use the facts of the case to make our rulings. And so if you've broadcast positions on one side or the other, well, then you're opening yourself up to challenges down the road yeah. when litigants feel that you can't be fair and impartial because you've yeah. stated a position in a certain way. Yeah. No, for sure. I, I definitely understand that. And I think, I mean, obviously, that's going to be probably hard for you in a sense because are you probably going to miss that? I'm sure. I mean, I, I saw too, you worked with uh, an international organization known as Affecto, which is the South American Child Abuse Conference in Colombia. And so I'm sure that, uh, can you, can you speak to kind of how those experiences and witnessing this sort of consistent um, tragedy in the sense of harm and crimes against children, how, how has that affected kind of how you view this position? Cause it sounds rough to continue to keep putting yourself in this position. <laughs> well, it's interesting because my wife thinks I'm crazy oh, yeah. because I am so overprotective of my kids. Oh, oh my <laughs> God. You, you don't can, even. You, you can see why. Oh, you see what you see. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's a very emotional job in, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And it's not just for me. It is for everyone who mm -hmm. works in this field. But it's also one of the most gratifying things that I have ever done. And that's because, you know, we talked earlier about outreach and you had mm -hmm. mentioned the outreach that I've done in the community. And we're very lucky in San Diego that the district attorney's office really does a lot of outreach in our community. Because once again, going back to, let's just take domestic violence prosecution, for mm -hmm. example. Sure, you can lock up as many people as you want to lock up. They're going to get back out. Yeah. But if you don't give them some reason to change their lives, they're going to go back. They're going to continue that cycle of abuse and they're going to be back in the system. That goes the same for the victims as well, oh, yeah. right? So victims get into this cycle of abuse. They get um, emotionally and psychologically traumatized as a result. And then they keep putting themselves back in these Especially abusive situations. Kids, Absolutely. You know? Well, kids, finances, yeah. um, obviously the emotional support, oh, you know. Of course. We, we, well, it's like trauma bonding. I'm absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, down in the South Bay, immigration became a huge issue as well because they relied on their partners for a lot of, uh, oh, you know, for, sure. for immigration and things like that. So those were all things that played a huge role in domestic violence cases. And so the outreach we do in the communities is is twofold. It's one with the uh, one with the domestic violence abusers mm -hmm. to let them know, look, we're we're keeping tabs on you. Yeah. We're making sure that you don't do this again. The Chula Vista Police Department did a fantastic job with that. But we do a lot of work with the victims to try and break them out of That's that cycle of violence. So resources, education, you know, to kind of let them know, look, this is not the only option mm -hmm. for you. No, I love that. I mean, that's that's amazing. I, I my this sounds so lame, but my sorority when I was at USD, we did a lot of outreach with Becky's House, right. um, domestic violence Absolutely. shelter for abused women in San Diego, and I'm pretty sure their children as well. And uh, it's so sad. It's such a, a hard situation, and I feel like every day you hear about another case of someone dying by domestic violence. And I, I know, I mean, for me, I'm a bit of a crime junkie, so to speak. I like learning about cases and stuff, which I know people can say is a little bleak, but. Uh, I feel like you oftentimes hear when you do hear about a murder or somebody dying at the hands of domestic violence, there have been action taken in terms of, you know, filing police reports and right. people being arrested for multiple crimes, you know, time and time again before, but then it just escalates and nothing gets done. And do you think that 
you know, having an office, you know, being in this position, have being a judge and stuff that you can work to make that better. So that stuff like that's like less likely to happen. Right. So that's tough to do as a yeah. judge. You know, that's more from an advocacy role, once again, from the prosecutor's office. But that's exactly what the domestic violence fatality review team does. Okay. And that's what we we had 15 that's domestic. That's incredible that exists. It, it is. It absolutely is. Is um, that everywhere or is that just San Diego that has that? There are a few others that exist throughout the country. Um, we're one of the foremost ones in the country. We're okay. one of the leaders with that type of work. Um, we had 15 domestic violence homicides last year. Um, in we San had Diego? in San Diego. Oh. We had another three domestic violence type situations, which resulted in homicides where someone was killed. Not one of the domestic violence individuals involved, but a bystander was killed, oh and a family gosh. member was killed as a result. Um, and then we had another five, unfortunately, murder suicides that involved domestic violence cases as well. Wow. So. You know, and and then we had 18,000, almost 18,000 reported domestic violence incidents in San Diego last year. That's 50, almost 50 a day. And that's reported. So all the unreported. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a lot of unreported. Oh, so, 100%. so what we do with the domestic violence fatality review team is when there is a domestic violence homicide and the case is resolved, the cases have to be resolved before we can, Move we on. can do anything yeah. and take any action oh, okay. with them. Um, and then we bring together all the partner agencies throughout the county. And there are there are close to 30 of them that come together oh, wow. at, you know, on a bi-monthly basis. Kind of, what right. So do? what they do is they call all the data and any contacts that the individuals involved in this incident had with their agencies. So not so every time we do one of these, not every agency is going to be involved, yeah. obviously. But you will get uh, CPS, you'll get um, Adult Protective Services, Indian Health Services, uh, all those, you know, they'll look through, make sure if they had any contacts with these individuals, they'll come in there and we'll talk about what these contacts were. Now, if a victim went and try and got five different restraining orders yeah. in the past and, 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 you know, that was one of the things that's a red flag, obviously. And so we'll try to see, okay, where were the system contacts? Where did they break down yeah. that allowed it to get to this point? And then we'll see, okay, what can we learn from here mm-hmm. and how can we message it out into the community to try and build greater awareness uh, about domestic violence? That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, that's wonderful that something like that exists. Absolutely. So, I mean, thank you for being involved in that. That's incredible. Yeah. And I, I know you'll continue to take that with you if elected, but just in a different, you know, respect. Absolutely. And it's something that, you know, I ju- there are judges who are very involved with domestic violence on in a different way mm-hmm. with restraining orders and yeah. trying to make sure that the domestic violence classes that individuals have to take are appropriate and focused. Mm-hmm. So that is something that I would definitely mm-hmm. continue doing if I were elected. So how much of your past experience has been dealing with the uh, Superior Court? I have been, a bunch of cases there? or do you, I've been in court every single day, pretty much every single right. day, okay. since I became a law clerk with the DA's that office in 2000. <laughs> how many years? So 20 years? A 20 yes. years experience. Okay, <laughs> right. so. Holy exactly. Holy. So then, um, as you know, you're going to be on the, on, the, on the other side now doing judge stuff. Hopefully. I, I mean, that's right. <laughs> Knock on wood. Yeah, that's but, right. But, um, you know, tell us a little bit about what you think your docket's going to look like, you know, civil, criminal. Sure. And, and and maybe tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what percentage of cases settle and, and how much mediation will you be doing and stuff like Sure. That? So the Superior Court has kind of a rotation for new judges right now. And what that rotation is, is the first year you're usually placed in an arraignment court, a misdemeanor arraignment courtroom, um, dealing with new cases or in juvenile court. And the next three to four years, you're in family court. And so you're dealing with some of the toughest of the cases that we deal with in this county because you're dealing with people's kids and you're dealing with people's money. Mm-hmm. And those are two very, very And sometimes you deal with the girlfriends too, so that's 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 even worse. Oh <laughs> I mean <laughs> serious. If that comes up, I'll keep a straight face right. while I'm <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. But no, I mean that's that's rough. I mean that's, I feel like yeah. they're starting you off right. so small with the misdemeanors, they're right. easing you into this and then just so, throwing you in the deep end. And, and you know, family courts it, it's definitely a very emotional place to be. It's a it's a tough place to be. Mm-hmm. There are Big, big cases on that docket. I mean, each of, each of these cases, you deal with about 50 cases a day. Will you tell people who don't maybe know what type of cases are, are sure. family court? So family court is child custody, divorce, marriage dissolutions, and everything that flows from there. Now, uh-huh. there is, you know, though that's a small, that's the big kind of 30,000 picture view. Mm-hmm. But when you get into that, you're talking about assets, 
Uh, you're talking about division of assets. Okay. You're talking about all sorts of things that fall under that family court umbrella that that could imaginably possibly come up in a divorce situation or a child custody situation. Oh yeah, no, I there's a quote that I love about this guy. He said, "I didn't know that I went to Yale Law School." Uh, and I would be using that today to uh, debate who the cockatoo of the family should go to. Uh, a custody cockatoo situation. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Pets. Some people like those cockatoos. <laughs> you know? Like, I'm so glad I paid all this money to, yeah. to do this. Exactly. Um, and then from there, the presiding judge obviously makes assignments for all the judges. And so from there, they can put you anywhere throughout the county. The Superior Court is countywide. And so you could be sent to to sit in any one of the courts around the county. Obviously, just like with any other job, as you gain more seniority, you have a little bit more say about yeah. where you go. Um, but initially, you get in your car, you keep your mouth shut, and you drive where they tell you to drive. Oh, yeah, mostly it's all central if you're right. working in San Diego exactly. yeah, exactly. or LA. You know, you, they send you all those cases. Right. Did you get any quirks? You do. You have There's a court clerk, you have a court reporter, you have a deputy in the courtroom, a bailiff in the courtroom um, to help you out. And trust me, they, the court clerks know more about the way the court system works than, than I definitely will when I start. And they, the judges definitely rely on them so much sure. because they're fantastic. How much of your time is mediation? Too? And, and, and if our listeners don't understand mediation, mediation is really just sitting down with two parties and trying to come up with a, with a settlement. It's like when your settlement. kids fight, right. you know? Yeah, and so, <laughs> uh, and so depending, on, depending on what your assignment is, it, that, it depends on that. So in the criminal courts, so 80%, about 80% of the cases that are filed in California are criminal. Then there's, wow. then there's about 9% that are family, 9% that are civil, and then you have probate and, and a lot of the other I didn't things. I so many were criminal. There's a, it's a big, big percentage. It's wow. about 77 point something percent okay. is, so, uh, wow. it is. Is that right? That's right. 77 point something percent of cases in California that are filed are criminal cases. Yeah, he deals with pretty much and, all and, with civil, and, so I thought that's, right. yeah. What percentage of that then is uh, immigration? We don't deal with a whole lot with immigration because that's federal. Yeah. So most of the most of the immigration cases go federally. How about drugs then too? Is that, is that Dr- um, no narcotics is a big part of it. I don't know what the breakdown within yeah. criminal is specifically, right. but yeah, we deal we deal with narcotics, we deal with domestic violence, gangs, um, economic crimes. Everything falls under the criminal umbrella. Right. So when you are a criminal judge, there are actually. Um, we don't call it mediation in, okay. in criminal so much, but there are readiness departments oh, okay. that deal with readiness conferences and the settlement of cases. So that's where you will sit down as a prosecutor with the defense attorney and a judge and talk about whether a plea bargain can be uh, reached in a certain case or not. The family courts, they do that in each case. They have mediation day. They have days days when you will sit down with the family court judge and discuss what the possible resolutions are for cases. And obviously in civil, civil cases, um, they have those types of mediation hearings as well. What do you, you know? What do you really like about the concept of being a judge? What is it that really motivates you? Because look, as you know, in, in, you know, public service, and and you've got a lot of opportunities and everything else, and you, you could stay a prosecutor if you want. But but what really motivates you? What when did the light go off and say, judge? That's what I wanted to do. You know, the light didn't necessarily really go off. The way it came about was in June of last year, a judge, a friend of mine who's a judge called me and said, look, you've been, you and I have been talking about this for a little while. Um, there are going to be multiple open seats on the court this year. If you want to do this, this is the time to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's kind of when the, the wheels got spinning and I decided to jump into it with both feet and went there. The reason, the reason for that, and like you said, public safety and, and uh, public service and all of those are, are fantastic. But there's a quote by Thomas Jefferson that, that, is, that sticks with website, me. Right? It is. It's on yeah. my website. It's on my website. And it's a quote that reads, it is the most sacred of the duties of a government to do equal and impartial justice to all its citizens. And that's truly how I've lived my life as a prosecutor, to make sure that I've done justice along every step of the way. And I truly feel that I am the kind of person who would make a good judge who has always seen both sides of the issue, has always been able to uh, look at both sides and come to a fair and just resolution. And I want to be able to preside over a situation or preside over a courtroom when I can ensure that happens. And that's truly what the motivation is, is that I feel that I can serve the community very well by being able to do that. Um, And as as an advocate, you can only have so much control over one side of what you do. And it's not a matter of power and control. It's a matter of being able to ensure fairness and justice um, along the way at every single step of the process. 
And one thing I wanted to talk about too, and I know uh, I'd asked you this earlier, but I know one of the things you talk about on your website and just in your campaigning so far is courage. And you talk about the courage being and how it's a necessary quality for a judge to have. And that includes making rulings that sometimes are not, or most of the time probably are not maybe going to be the most popular um, ruling to make. Um, But you talked about ruling with legality and fairness. And even if that decision is not popular, how do you deal with that? I mean, how do you basically that whole thing of like, well, you can't make everybody happy. You need to have the right. courage to be disliked. Absolutely. Um, do you, how do you deal with that? Cause I know I'm such a people pleaser. I feel like I'd be a terrible judge. I'd be like, just do whatever you want. I just want you guys to be happy, you know? So. Well, when I sat down, when I sat down to kind of come up with my website, mm-hmm. um, I sat down and thought about, thought about judicial values that were important to me. And, and the ones that I came up with were temperament. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously your temperament in the courtroom is, is hugely important. Oh yeah. Uh, integrity, ethics, communication, courage and morals mm-hmm. of that entire list to me courage is the most important i don't mean the kind of courage that our first responders have and our military personnel mm-hmm. have because that's that's obviously an amazing type of courage but i what i meant was that the courage to make the right decision every time even if it's not the most popular one and i think that's the most important of the virtues that i came up with because it's it's courage in that sense that allows all those other virtues to be possible because unless you have the courage to make the right decision every time integrity, ethics, morals are not going to follow. And so you have to have that, uh, that ability to, to stand up and, and say, look, you're not going to like everything I do. And, and there are a lot of judges who are exactly like that. You go into their courtroom, you have just the, the most undying respect for them. And you know, not everything's going to go your way. Mm-hmm. But what they're going to do is they're going to make a ruling and they're going to explain to you why, you're make, why they made that ruling. And at the end of the day, you may not agree with it, but you're going to understand why that ruling was made. It's like someone told me when I started this process, they said, look, if you're a baseball fan, I'm going to give you a quick baseball analogy, right? If you're an umpire and you're going to call high and inside a strike, call high and inside a strike every single time for every single batter, right? Mm -hmm. Don't do it for one batter and not for the next, because then people have no idea why you're doing what you're doing. So yes, you can't be you can't be a people pleaser if you want to be a judge. That's not that's Career not the way over it works. For me, yeah. Right, but I think um, I think the most important thing is to do what you're doing with humility, with compassion, and with respect. And if you if the people come into your courtroom and they feel that they have had a chance to be heard, mm-hmm. that they've been respected, that they've had their day in court, and then you explain to them why you're doing what you're doing, well, they're going to leave there. With maybe not a sense of 100% fulfillment. <laughs> that they'll get there, though, to the respect right. well, of the anger disease. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but, but hopefully with an understanding of why a certain decision was made. Even if they may not agree with it 100%, um, you're not there to make sure people agree with you all the time. Can you talk about maybe some judicial I don't know, judicial temperament differences or, or philosophical differences you, you may have with your, with your opponent? I, I guess you have one opponent right now. I do. Right? Yeah, I do. So... So, I mean, you know, people are going to see there's going to be your name and her name. Roberta. Right? Yeah. And yeah, I was yeah. going to say, too, I think I said this to you. She, um, we had spoken yesterday and she said, I think CJ is a great guy. And I just think we have different methods of how we would go about, um, you know, serving in this position. Great and, guy. Check. That's yeah. Great. No, obviously that's, she's, you guys have such great mutual respect for each other, which is amazing, by the way, because I know that's not true with, with everybody. And that's what you have to have with lawyers. Oh, with yeah. Lawyers, we, I mean, one of the things, that, you know, when I used to teach law students in there, you know, I just tell them, I, you, know, you, know, you know, no matter what, no matter whether you win or lose, your ethical principles and your integrity are going to follow you every place you go. Never compromise those. You can't. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I never, um, I didn't lead my life as a prosecutor for the last 17 years with this end goal in mind. Yeah. Thinking someday, okay, I'm going to be on my best behavior every yeah, day. Yeah, right. Because someday I'm going to <laughs> be a day, judge, yeah. right? <laughs> Um, but you know that that you're absolutely right. That is the end result. And so then, when you decide to do this, you never know what you're going to do in life, yeah. right? So when I decided to do this, and then I went out in the community and I spoke to people, and the overwhelming response and support I got from them, um, because and and their response was, well, because of the perspective you've always had as a mm-hmm. prosecutor, that's why we are proud to support you. And and you know, I have a lot of endorsements that I'm very proud of. Yeah. One of the one of the group of endorsements that I am absolutely the most proud of is the 40 something or so criminal defense attorneys in San Diego who've endorsed uh-huh. me. And they haven't endorsed me. And they haven't they haven't endorsed me because I was a soft on crime prosecutor mm-hmm. or I was someone who rolled over on cases. They know I was a tough on crime prosecutor, mm-hmm. but I was always someone who was fair. 
And that, and they know that's the kind of judge I will be. I will be someone who's fair. And that's why they, they've put their support behind me, which I am definitely very grateful for and humbled by. No, and one thing I wanted to talk about too is I know you obviously said morality was another big, big aspect of that. And without courage, the morality couldn't exist. Um, But I know you've received many endorsements, especially from law enforcement in San Diego too, which I think is a great testament to who you are and how tough you are on crime and and everything like that. Um, How do you think you really developed your your kind of moral compass? Was it really established as a child with what you've seen from your parents? Um, Do you feel like they've kind of shifted since becoming a lawyer or maybe even a parent? Like how how has that evolved for you? So... Like we talked about earlier, I moved here when I was 12 from, yeah. from India. And, you know, when you're you that— You totally lost your Indian accent. Well, oh, my God, one. I okay. when, <laughs> when you're 12 years old and you move to a different country— you assimilate An Indian accent is not the coolest thing to have. <laughs> the, <laughs> Point taken. Right. The first so. love of my life, I was five. His name was Tanush, and I thought the Indian accent was amazing. So, I don't know— <laughs> Well, my brother and I worked really hard to get rid of ours when we moved here. So that's awesome. But you know, as as my parents moved here because they wanted better a better education for us, and Mm -hmm. my dad is a small business owner. He's been a small business owner in San Diego for the last thirty three years. And you never realize, especially when you're 12, you never realize the struggles your parents are going through. Oh, no. Right? You never realize the hardships. To put you through bishops. Right, yeah, exactly. We'll get there. I want to go to law school, <laughs> go to undergraduate school. Oh, my God. Still not over uh, it. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you don't realize the sacrifices paid. they made. It's yeah, all that, that, paid. I, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I appreciate it. We'll get there. <laughs> not that I'm harboring anything. Oh, my yeah. gosh. But yes, sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead, okay. please. Um, and so... But now, but in hindsight, when you, when I look back and I see what my parents sacrificed for us, mm-hmm. what they gave up for us, the, uh, you know, and the dignity and the courage with which they persevered through all the hardships they were having, that re- really formed my basis for my ethics, uh, my dedication to my family, my dedication to my work, um, and, and just who I am as a person. And so I don't think my morals have shifted mm-hmm. since I became an attorney. I, I've, I, one of the things that I say on my website is that morals, your morals should be well-established in this community well before you ever choose to try right. to get appointed or be elected as a oh, judge. So it's not where you have suddenly have this <laughs> oh, shift. Oh, yeah, exactly. I'm running right. now. i got to be yeah. good. Yeah. Um, and so that foundation that my parents gave both my brother and me has stayed with us our entire career, um, our entire lives, and, and truly is the foundation for who I am today. No, okay. I love that. And um, one thing I was going to say is that we we obviously went to bishops together. And I wanted to, not well, together, well, right. but we, know, we both went to bishops different times. But we had a lot of the same teachers and stuff. And one thing I wanted to ask is, obviously, that's a really amazing school to go to. It's an, I mean, you don't really realize as much when you're there. At least I know I didn't until I graduated and looked back. Oh, my gosh, the school overlooking the ocean with literally almost college-level classes right. and teachers and right. stuff. How do you feel like that experience kind of shaped you um, into deciding to, to go into law or anything like that? Like, what can you what can you speak to your experience there, maybe? You know, and, and you're right. Once again, looking back in yeah. hindsight, <laughs> you realize the opportunities that, that we were given going to a school like that. Thank but, you, Dad. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Mom and Dad. I'll say yeah. that as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, the... What's, what's amazing about bishops and what's amazing about schools like bishops yeah. is that obviously education is important. That's a big component of going to that school. Oh, yeah. And your parents moved here to give you. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why. Absolutely. But shaping the individual, shaping the person, um, establishing, once again, morality, establishing ethics, establishing virtue, establishing community service. Those are a big part of going to an, a school like that. And the staff and, and teachers and everyone at that school um, they were very, very dedicated to making sure that you were a well-rounded person when you graduated from there. And so it absolutely played a huge role in my future mm-hmm. um, because you're not just focusing on education and then leaving everything else to the wayside. Uh, they give you kind of a, you know, a lifelong learning, a passion for lifelong learning um, and a, a, a passion for being a person who can assimilate to any kind of situation that you are in uh, when you leave there. And so it absolutely played a huge role in my future. It, it didn't necessarily play a huge role in me becoming an attorney because yeah. I honestly didn't know that I wanted to, to go to law school when I graduated. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Yeah. And, um, but, but when I decided to teach, giving back to the community was one of the big things that came from Bishops. It's a good feeling, isn't it, though? I mean, it's, good it is. it's good feeling to teach. It, it'd, be, it'd be great if it paid more. It was. Uh, <laughs> and, and, Teachers should be paid more. My and it's, very, teacher. it's very rewarding, though. It I, is. I mean, and... Uh, you know, I'm at the point in my career where 
where I've got uh, hopefully a bunch of my listeners who I call my cronies, who 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 are the students who I taught. And, and it's weird, you know, I'll get people calling me up and say, hey, professor, how's it, how's it going? Hey, can you help me out with this case? Well, or, I need some of my best friends that his I students, mean, actually. It was I mean, but you <laughs> not know, a great idea to bring a high school but, student with a bunch of uh, college students or lawyer, you know, law students. It's like but, having a bunch of kids who become your colleagues who every now and then you hear them saying what you taught them. And you're like, yes, yeah, that's so cool. Oh, Absolutely. it's the metaphors I would roll my eyes at that he would give me when I was like 12 or 10. And then I hear them repeating them back. Like there's some sort of like- They were listening. They weren't falling like, asleep in the back of the class. Yeah, right? But, but no, I mean- but getting back to bishops, um, <laughs> basically, I just, yeah, I feel like it definitely, they, they held you accountable and they made you Absolutely. be an adult in a sense. And I know at times I thought that was horrible and I would kicking and screaming. I remember specifically um, that old library that we had that had that smell of like books, which I loved, but also I was like, ah, you know, we probably should have this be better considering how much my parents paid to send us here. <laughs> but um, I, I had forgotten to bring some library books back and they were overdue. And um, I remember I said like a little brat to my librarian, Oh, my mom said she was going to, you know, remind me to bring them in today. And she just, she must have forgotten. Looking back now, oh my gosh, I want to smack myself. But I remember she said, well, is it your mom's job to bring them back? Right. Or is it yours, Harriet? And I, one, <laughs> cried. Two, then I sucked it up. And I was like, later that day, I was like, okay, personal responsibility. Harriet, that's the toughest thing <laughs> no, in I know, your right? life. I'm the softest person well, in the world. <laughs> well, but as, as Gavin Newsom's California would be now, oh my gosh. we're not going to charge for, for a library, but we're not going to charge people for overdo library books anymore. I paid so much in library book fines. But, it's like a blockbuster. You forget that, you know? You forget let's that sort of too. go to that. Let's use that maybe as a segue. Be, because I get back to teach you on the question, though. The differences between you and your opponent. And Roberta not, Winston. Right. Yeah. I mean, not so much maybe her, but... But, but, but just, no, maybe you, know, you versus other opponents about or you. what sure. yeah. Yeah. sets you apart. You know, so I think my background as a prosecutor is something that definitely sets me apart from Miss Winston. And, and I... She's a very nice lady, and I, we've met a few times yeah. through the campaign trail, and um, you know we've we've always been cordial, and I think that's the only way to run a race. It's always interesting to me when people run judicial, especially judicial races, and they're just can't right, or they're yeah. nasty to each other, and I'm like, you you remember what position you're running for, right? <laughs> so, uh, but I, I certainly think that my background as a prosecutor, um, the fact that I've been in court every day trying cases, um, you know, trying some very serious cases. The, the, I've handled thousands and thousands of cases over my career. I've prosecuted hundreds and hundreds of cases personally. And so I think having that foundation, having the awareness of how a courtroom works, being in a courtroom every day uh, definitely gives me that foundation. One of the other things that I think is is a huge benefit when, you know, you always have people say, well, don't we have too many prosecutors on the bench, right? That's always yeah. something people want to throw out there. One of the things that you do as a prosecutor is you interact with people. Right. You interact with law enforcement, you interact with judges, you interact with defense attorneys, you interact with victims, you interact with vict uh, with witnesses and members of the public. And that's a huge part of being a judge. Yeah. And you have to learn to interact with those people on a very different basis, depending on what the circumstances yeah. are. And that's something that I've been doing for the last 17 years. And so having an understanding of how a courtroom works, the rules of evidence, um, the rules of procedure, having con not only conducted jury trials, countless jury trials myself, but as a supervisor for the last five years, having sat in court and watched my attorneys do jury trials, mm -hmm. um, you know, teaching them the ins and outs of jury selection and, um, and, and how to cross-examine witnesses and the rules of evidence and when to object at certain times, uh, once again, gives me a very firm foundation on how the courtrooms run and, and how a courtroom should run. So I think that's, that's probably the greatest, most stark difference between the two of us. Um, I think philosophy-wise, if you read um, what I have on my website versus what Ms. Winston has on hers, the approaches that we would take to certain situations in certain cases, um, I think would probably be another difference between the two of us as well. I can't speak to what she would obviously necessarily oh, yeah, do sure. in every circumstance, uh, but I truly feel, while I feel that rehabilitative justice should be a big part of our criminal justice system, it, it cannot be the only uh, the only avenue. It cannot be the be-all and end-all, and it should not be because public safety still is the overarching goal of our local government and our court system, and we have to keep that in mind. Like I say, legislating from the bench is always tough. I mean, I mean, if, if I mean, sometimes people have to understand, you know, the, the three parts of our law. Absolutely. I, I mean, the legislature makes the law. Absolutely. Uh, the, the executive enforces the law, and the 
and the judicial branch actually interprets. Absolutely, and I do not. I do not believe that judges should legislate from the bench in the least bit. I'm a firm believer in our constitution. I'm a firm believer in the original interpretation of our constitution, and and so I feel the judges are. You're there to apply the law. Um, you're there not. You're not there to legislate. That's a, that's a completely separate branch of government. I tell people this, um, you know, on a regular basis when we go out to forums and they ask, okay, what would you do differently or how would you change this? I say. Look, if there are issues, we need to talk to our legislature about that. You need to talk to your legislators about that mm-hmm. so that they can change the law. And then I can go, ha- go ahead and, and implement it and apply it when and if I'm a judge. No, yeah. for sure. And no, I, I think that's awesome. I think that's a really good um, way to differentiate yourself between that of your you know, other, other candidates running for the position. So thank you for explaining that more in depth. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on, and this is kind of the whole basis for the podcast, is obviously running for this office. It's not supposed to be partisan. Right. Um, it gives you a really unique opportunity to kind of speak to, to, to both sides of the political spectrum. You're speaking to the citizens of San Diego. Absolutely. You're not positioning yourself or aligning yourself with one person or the other, regardless you're of any endorsements or anything. Right. Yeah, you're Absolutely. everybody's Absolutely. judge. You, you would be. And so... Basically, do you feel like politics and political affiliation um, tends to bleed into any part of the judicial system in San Diego at all? And what can we do to rectify that? Well, yes. Unfortunately, like any big organization, politics does play a role in it. Um, You know, there are obviously judges on our bench who are Republicans. There are judges on our bench who are Democrats. And and there are judges who are independent. Mm -hmm. Same goes for the DA's office. Same goes for the public defender's office. I think one of the things that I can confidently say, having worked in this system for the last 17 years, is that I have never been, excuse me, I have never been in a situation as a prosecutor where I've been in front of a judge um, with a defense attorney in any situation in which politics has injected itself into that situation, where a judge's political background or political leanings have ever made a difference in at least not, you know, not where it's apparent to the, to the outcome of case. Certainly for me as a prosecutor, the fact that um, I'm registered as a Republican with, you know, has never, ever affected yeah. how I've dealt with the case, how I've dealt with any individuals, how I've dealt with any defendants. And, and it never should, um, just as we have fantastic prosecutors in the DA's office who are Democrats. Yeah. And, and they're on the same, you know, they're on the same page. They do their job. You come to your job and you look at that victim before you. You look at the defendant in, in court as individuals, mm-hmm. um, no color, no gender, no race, no creed, no religion. They're a person that you're going to be fair and impartial to and make sure you can do justice to. So, you know, there are, people are always going to have political affiliations. Yeah. That's that's no the nature of a human being. Yeah. So and you're going to have your biases um, that are a result of that. But it is extremely important when you're a judge, when you're a defense attorney, when you're a prosecutor to make sure you realize what those biases are and you put them aside yeah. when you're dealing with your mm-hmm. cases and with your job. No, I love that. That's huge. And no, sorry, tell us something fun about yourself or something different. I mean, you know, what do you like to do outside of the, of the wall? Well, and, and so, so for the last eight months, it's been absolutely nothing yeah, except, right? except, <laughs> campaigning, uh, yeah, yeah. except <laughs> campaigning and never being home for dinner. Oh yeah, um, sure. <laughs> but you know, it's. I have two. I have two daughters who are eleven and eight, so they keep my wife and me very busy right now. And <laughs> I can't imagine that. Right, that's my sister and I's <laughs> yeah, age difference. Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. So, uh, you know, they're just. It doesn't get easier. No, Thanks. stop it. Yes, Pretty soon they're going to ask you to have a podcast. No, stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can absolutely see my eight-year-old wanting to do exactly what you're doing right now because she is already the most opinionated little girl in the world. So know what it's like for that. Girls are easier when they're younger. I swear they're they're more they're cleaner. They're easier to potty train. Well, to the age older, of twelve. Yeah. Right? Well, then, well, that's when. Oh, hell breaks loose. Yeah. My my eleven year old my eleven year old thinks she's nineteen. Right. So. Oh, and she knows everything. She, I know I did. Yeah. She does. She's 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 a brilliantly wonderful little girl. But yes, yeah, she definitely thinks she's nineteen. So. Um, so spending, you know, spending time with family is something that has always been important to me, has always been uh, very important uh, for, for both my wife and myself. And so on the weekends, we do a lot of family things. We do a lot of hiking. We do a lot of bicycling, um, just, you know, spending time together. And then, as you know, I'm sure weekends now are just filled with kids activities. Oh my God. Oh gosh, so, yeah. yeah. Oh, so, you're booked, especially yeah. if your kid's doing a sport that's right. a traveling sport. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. So, my kids are, yeah, my kids <laughs> both, my kids both play a musical instrument. Um, I wearing that one. Yeah. So your house is loud. Yes, yeah. the house is loud. My, my daughter's, uh, my drums. daughter's with the, 
Pardon? Any drums? No, no drums. Oh, no, God. guitar and violin. So okay. my older daughter's a violinist. She's uh, with the San Diego Symphony. Awesome. Oh, cool. And so she plays with them. And then, you know, they both do they both do sports as well. So oh, cool. it's, I used to play golf. I used to play tennis. <laughs> I used to play cards with my friends. Right. Oh, you used to have a social life. Right, exactly. Yeah, right? Oh, imagine gosh. the thought of having a card game now. Or just I know. taking the time. Or, or we're just going out and playing golf. I don't right? live with taking, you anymore, so what's stopping yeah. you from doing this you know, it used to be, it would, you know, before we had kids, it used to be Saturday morning. You go, see you later, honey. And I'd go right. out and we'd be on the golf course for six yeah. hours. Yeah. yeah, that wouldn't go over no. so well anymore. <laughs> I don't, think that, don't think that that works that well. Yeah. But, uh, no, I love that though. And I know you said too, it's not just about morally or ethically what you do, uh, you know, as a, in your job or what you do for, it's, it's personal and it's, you know, right. how you also you know, have your career and it's been professional as well. Like, and I always talk about that too, regarding presidential stuff. And I know we won't get into that, but I think whoever you're voting for, for any position, you need to have lead a certain life in public Absolutely. and in private. Absolutely. Um, but no, I mean, so one thing I wanted to talk about too, and I know we're almost out of time here, but personally, how do you kind of feel this podcast? What we are trying to do is kind of bridge this huge divide that's taken place um, even more. So I feel like recently between the left and the right, the Democrats right. and the conservatives, it, there's this us versus <laughs> them narrative. How do you recommend that people with opposing views listen to each other and hear each other out? Well, part of that's almost being a judge. I mean, right? Yeah, it is. Right? It so absolutely I mean, you is. Have crucial insight. Yeah, absolutely. No, it, I mean that's that's all that being a judge is about, especially when you talk about family law cases and yeah. things like oh that, gosh. right? Oh. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because this our country, unfortunately, has become so much more divisive in the last few years, yeah. right? And so, where whereas it used to be, where if you were a Republican or you were a Democrat you could still have a conversation with the other side about mm -hmm. certain issues. And, and now it just devolves into a yelling match or a screaming match when someone realizes you're on one side of the aisle or the other. And so what I've always told people is, like, look, the only way that you're going to be able to have any kind of civil discourse with people is, is if you sit down and then you discuss things and being able and listening. When I talked about communication earlier about a virtue that I think is very important for judges, obviously being able to get your point across is very important as a judge. But equally, if not more important, the ability to just be quiet and listen, right? Because both sides of the aisle, sometimes people just want to be heard. Mm -hmm. And they just want to be able to tell you what their side of the issue is or their side of the story is. And as long as you can take that in without interjecting your thoughts and your opinions constantly, where they, they think, okay, he's not listening, he's arguing with me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Being able to do that and then continuing that civil discourse, I think, is is the most important part yeah. of it. In, in court, most lawyers are pretty good about being respectful to the oh, judge and for the some, other side. Just... But but OK, you're a judge. Let's say you're three years in. Somebody's doing that little background on you and that, it, you know. What do you mean by little background? No, no, no. Just, you know, what you'll do with it. If somebody's looking for a case or something, they'll say, well, this person means this way or this way. But but I guess my point and my question to you, though, is, is, you know, what are some things you just wouldn't tolerate? I, I mean, in your courtroom. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's I've I've seen this as an attorney in, in court, sitting in court and watching certain attorneys interact with judges. Um, disrespect is something that I cannot tolerate one bit and I would absolutely not tolerate. And. Now there's a very there's a there's a vast difference between vehemently and passionately mm -hmm. arguing your point or your client's position and being disrespectful. And I one of the things that has always been just supremely important to me is courtroom etiquette mm -hmm. and uh, courtroom decorum yeah. because I think when you're in a courtroom and, and a lot of attorneys forget that and it, you're you're in a court of law you're in a sacred place that deserves your respect mm -hmm. and there are certain ways to act. There are certain ways to dress. There are certain ways to address not just the judge, but court staff, bailiffs, litigants, mm -hmm. opposing counsel. And all of those have been have been things that I've taken very seriously in my career. And I would absolutely take very seriously as a judge as well. So I think disrespect um, is something that I'm a pretty even keeled person for the most no, part. No, you seem it. That's one thing I can say about you. You seem like that perfect you seem like you have lawyer the quality. Personality and, and right. temper. Yeah, no, that's that's great. That's great. And, and, and you know, neither of us could do this <laughs> at all. You know, every attorney, <laughs> she'd be the touchy feely judge. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, no, <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. You'd be the sensitive judge. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought you meant like a Bob Filner <laughs> no, type of judge. No, not a not a Bob Filner judge. No, no. <laughs> sorry. 
Sometimes <laughs> generational terms yeah. have meanings. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. I apologize. Yeah, no, yeah, no I think that's you know, so we've, important. We've all, as attorneys, we, we've all walked into courtrooms um, where you know you know how the judge is going to react to certain things. Yeah. And there are certain courtrooms where it's just easier to walk into because you know it's going to be a more mellow, just a relaxed place to be. Yeah. And some courtrooms are a little more high tension. Um, I, I'm definitely, if I'm once again fortunate enough to be elected, I, I'm going to be the kind of judge in which people, in, who people enjoy appearing in front of. Um, they will realize. That's huge. Absolutely. Like that's, that's they, and, huge. and when I say enjoy, they know they're going to get a fair trial. They're yeah. going to get a f- fair hearing. Um, and it's going to be a low-key kind of mellow courtroom situation. I'm not going to be someone who's yelling and screaming all the time. But they are they're definitely going to, to know. kiss the ring in right. a sense, which I exactly. know that there are some judges out there, there like are. that. There yeah. um, are. But they're also, they're going to know what my bounds and my limits are very clearly. Oh, that's cool. That sounds like the perfect judge that you want to you want to go in front of. Oh, I you hope know? so. No, seriously. But do you, do you have any other questions? No, I'll or? tell you what. So. We're, we're winding up. Winding with, down and we're, up, we're winding up and down. Um. <laughs> Sorry, winding down. But at the same time, uh, um, hopefully this will be your last judicial political thing you have to do. So, well, I'm sure he's many things after. No, 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 no. Oh, no. okay. No, I guess, podcast I like guess what I'm going to keep going no, 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 no. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying here, though, is uh, why don't you keep give our listeners your elevator speech. And where can people find you? Where can people find all the information? Absolutely. So once again, CJ Modi, M-O-D-Y. I'm running for San Diego Superior Court seat number 18. One of the things that is really important to remember that the Superior Court races are countywide. So everyone in the county gets to vote for Superior Court judge, regardless of what your party affiliation is, whether you're registered as a Democrat, an independent or a Republican. Um, The judges will appear on every single one of your ballots. My website is cjmody, M-O-D-Y, for F-O-R, judge.com, cjmody for judge.com. There's a lot of information about me, my background, um, and my, my positions on my judicial values and things like that, and my endorsements on there. There's also a link at the bottom. So if you have any questions, uh, please feel free to shoot me an email. I'd be glad to try and answer uh, any questions that I can answer as a judicial candidate. <laughs> but thank you so much for having me on. I really oh, appreciate you. So thank you for time. coming. Thank you so I, much for being you know, here. I knew I wanted you on when I saw you appear at, was it Dick's Barbecue or whatever? Uh, Mike's, Mike's Mike's Barbecue. There we go. There's a lot of, there's yeah. a lot of barbecue places uh, in this town. But no, thank you so much and best of luck. And you're almost, you're almost done. Absolutely. You know, you're Ten, almost more days. Ten more days. All right. <laughs> thank you so much. All the best. Thank you.